Episode 243, Jen Drummond, world record holder and author of the new book, Break Proof. Thankfully, it was early in my career instead of later in my career because I think the ramifications are less significant. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Jen, her book and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 243. As always, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please rate and review in your favorite podcast app. And now on with the show. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. Our guest today is Jen Drummond. She is a mother of seven. She's a successful business owner, and she's a world record holder. Um, is the first woman to climb the second highest summits on each of the seven continents. Um, she now spends her time inspiring others to create a thriving business and a lasting legacy of their own. So before I tell you a little bit more about Jen, welcome. Welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm excited. This is uh, a first of... um, Unless someone was holding back on me, I don't think I've ever had a world record holder. <laughs> Woohoo! Yes, there's a few of us crazies out there. I can promise. I vouch as one. And um, a mother, I, I don't know if I've had another mother of seven. That That's not quite a world record, but that's also, it's funny though, seven children, seven continents, it just happened. That way. Yeah, so that was part of like the joke of me being enticed into the pursuit. They're like seven <laughs> continents, seven mountains, seven children. Sounds like a jackpot. I'm like, it does. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I'm feeling uh, lucky that we have you here, Jen. Um, Jen has an upcoming book, um, early 2024, where she uh, shares her story and strategies for success. That book will be called uh, Quit Proof. Seven Strategies to Build Resilience and Achieve Your Life Goals. And she also has a a podcast called Seek Your Summit. She does programs and signature talks. So I'll put links to that in the show notes. There's my mistake, somehow saying signature chalks. Hey, that's allowed. We take those kind of mistakes all day long. (laughs) Little mistake, just a little uh, chuckle there. So we'll talk more about the book and the podcast and other things that you do, Jen. But, you know, of all of the different things you've um, experienced, I'm, I'm really curious to hear, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Hey, so one of my favorite mistakes is early in my career. Thankfully, it was early in my career instead of later in my career, because I think the ramifications are less significant. But I had just broken off to start my own financial service business. I'd been working for a firm for a few years. We were independent reps. So we like I was kind of used to the 1099 thing and all that stuff. But I was like, okay, I figured out this mousetrap. I know how much override they're getting for what I'm doing. So I'm going to go do my own deal. So I set up an office and I was so focused on what the office looked like the color copy machine, having the name outside the building, having all these little offices, a receptionist. And I mean, before it was me and I had an assistant. Now all of a sudden I got this office space where I had tons of space and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to make this all pretty. And then clients are going to come to us. And I wasn't spending time on getting clients or recruiting other reps. 
I was spending time on making the office look good. And so you can imagine how that fast forwards a couple months later and the bills are coming in. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Really, I'm in sales as a financial advisor. I need to get back to the sales thing instead of like having this office be so pretty with plants and everything else. I mean, when the color copy machine bill came in, I was like, okay, no one's printing anything else in color. This is ridiculous. Like what's going on? And it was just, I had this idea of what the everything should look like instead of allowing things to organically build and come about to what they were going to look like. And the crazy thing is, is I had a client that was the CEO of a credit union. And at that time, she was looking at getting into financial services because the laws had changed. So now credit unions were allowed to offer financial products that were used to be limited to only banking institutions. And so then I'm like, hey, I can do that. I can do that. And she's like, oh, okay, perfect. We're interviewing advisors now. Why don't you become one of the people that's interviewing? So I go to interview. They give me the contract. And all of a sudden, I'm not even blasting my name anywhere, right? Like we did a white label situation where the credit union could build up their name. We did a revenue sharing agreement between the advisor, myself and the institution and handled all the back office stuff behind the scenes. So here I spent all this money into having it look a certain way and the opportunity actually had it look an entirely different way. And luckily I wasn't so ingrained to being a certain way that I went with the flexible mindset and started building this business as a white label platform for institutions. And had I not done that, we would have been closed by the end of the year. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, um, you, you mentioned how it was, it was good in a way for, you know, a mistake like this to happen early in your career. Maybe, you know, there's less at stake early on as stressful as it might be, but I mean, I'll give you credit. At least you recognized the situation early enough to be able to pivot that you weren't too stuck or too stubborn. I I mean, I think that's worth celebrating of recognizing the mistake and and finding a better path forward. Yeah, no, I think a lot of us, and I know I'm prone to this at times too. Like I want the redemption in the same location, right? Like instead of being like, Hey, I dumped all this money into this idea, but this other idea took off. Okay. I needed to spend money in this idea for that other idea to take off. I don't need to keep dumping money here, hoping this idea will eventually return. It did return. It just returned in a different space than what I thought it was going to look like. And the more that we can say, hey, I don't need to get this from where I put it. I just need to get it. And wherever that comes, that's kind of part of the process the better off you are because I've been that person who's gotten rigid and is like, no, we are making this work. Yeah, <laughs> and the yeah. universe is like, actually, you're not. And we're <laughs> going to keep reminding you that you're not until you can open your eyes up and see the opportunity that's in front of you and go towards that opportunity. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a tough balance as you're describing there of possibly making the mistake of giving up on a path too quickly yeah. or yeah. the mistake of sticking with it too long. Like all that is, is just, you know, a a series of judgment calls along the way of, you know, not bailing out too quickly. Do we stick with it or do we pivot? But it's, you know, it seems like it was, um, I guess, you know, fortunate that that other opportunity to pivot presented itself to you or may may have worked, it may have, may have worked out differently. 
Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. I'm grateful that we didn't have enough like time resources to keep both ends going. It was like, hey, we only have this many people. So we only have this many people and this thing's running. We got to catch the fish that's on the line and not throw more lines in the water. And so that's where all of us got directed into that effort. And then as we started building out and having these relationships, we did still have clients that didn't come through that channel. And then we could start building out that piece as well. But it didn't end up being our forerunner. It ended up being kind of like a fill-in after things got established with what was running. Yeah. Now, when you when you first were ramping up, starting up that independent firm, is it expected or frowned upon that you would try to bring clients with you to the firm that you were establishing? Like, were you having yeah. to start from scratch or what, how how is that supposed to work? So I did sign a do not compete. Um, so that meant I wasn't allowed to reach out to people, but they were allowed to reach out to me. And this was before social media was big. So it wasn't like, oh, where's Jen? I'm going to go find her on social. It was, where's Jen? What am I going to do? Um, but in financial services, and I think a lot of businesses, people build the relationship with the advisor, right? right? And right. so those people found me pretty organically. And like once one person found me, they were like, well, my referred you to this person, so I'm going to let them know. And it like it it, it came around pretty quickly. Um, so that was good. But yeah, you step out into that unknown and you're like, I hope. And it's just those big companies will sue you. So it's not like you're going to play games with it. I was not playing games. It was not worth it. I'm like, listen, right. it will all work out. Right. Um, and it did. It did. But it is a leap of faith for sure. So then how how did the the life cycle of that firm play out? And it was this before you had any of your seven children. I'm just curious to hear yes. a little bit more of both the business and the life story of, of yeah. how this progressed for you then. Okay. So what happened was, so I got this, I got the relationship with the credit union and I went in there and I did it all, right? Like I was the advisor. I was like working out all the bugs and I just wanted to learn it firsthand. So I knew what was working, what wasn't, what to expect, what not to expect. And lucky for me, her second in charge used to own a marketing company that marketed to credit unions. So he kind of put me under his wing and he's like, Hey, Jen, this is going to be a big thing for credit unions. Like this is just now getting legs. It's a brand new concept, but credit unions are interested in having this extra line of revenue. So you should really consider doing this. And I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, there's going to be a conference coming up that is going to have a lot of CEOs there. And in the credit union industry, they share ideas because if you don't live, work, or worship in that area, then you can't be a member. So if there's a four-hour drive between branches, then those two credit unions can share ideas because they're not like stealing each other's clients, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, okay, so that's interesting. That's been the value of niching down, right? Like this niche all collects and then you kind of penetrate and build a reputation there and it can expand. So I set up a booth. I'm like, okay, we're going to try to get five institutions. And when we get those five institutions, we're going to build them up and do this thing. And we got 13 because we were just first to the party. So there wasn't a lot of competition in the beginning. And so there's a huge advantage to timing in all businesses. Um, and so we got 13. Uh, it was hard to find reps. 
to, I didn't, you know, like you have to all of a sudden recruit all the people to fill the relationships that you just established. You have a contract that's really young that hasn't been replicated over years. So you're kind of working out the bugs of that the long way. I mean, there's, it's growing pains. It's, it just, it shows up different ways for different people, but that business just started going gangbusters because the beauty of a credit union, like I said earlier, you have to live, work, or worship in that area. Well, in Michigan, a lot of the credit unions were employer-based. So if you were Gerber Federal Credit Union, you worked at Gerber Baby Foods. If you were Autobody, you worked at General Motors. If you were Kellogg, you worked at Kellogg Cereal. And so if something happened at that corporation, so say Gerber got bought out or sold from Nestle to Novartis, now all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of people that have buyouts and things to worry about. And you know so much about that because you're so connected to that employer group. So then it was very easy to help people because it was the, like everybody was going through the same thing at the same time. And you could do seminars and educate them and just like really penetrate these smaller towns. Um in the most positive way possible. And so we built a very strong reputation for the institutions, for the membership, for the employer groups, and the business was going well. And then I, you know, I was at the age where I was was starting to have kids. And so I started hiring myself out of a job because I didn't want to be self-employed. I wanted to be a business owner. And a lot of us are glorified self-employed people. So luckily I... Um, had a business law teacher that I kept in touch with. And he like helped me think about how do you do this? Like, what do you do to start pulling yourself out of working in the business and instead working on the business? And so that was very good guidance. And the same time when I'm having kids, now all of a sudden they're competing with my time, which makes it a lot easier to hand off duties at work because I'd rather be with them than doing, you know, all the things I was doing before. So that really helped. And I still own the business today. I'm probably less involved than I've ever been, but um, I love it. And I know it's there and I know I could always get back into it at any time. And I'm grateful for the leadership that's going on and how it's been growing and doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's that's a sign of of real progress in a business, as, as you were saying, that um, you, you you don't have to be involved in every detail. You can take time away for whatever reasons, including uh, climbing mountains and yeah, <laughs> spending yeah. time with family and, and, and what other sequence. Like there's a book I read probably at least 20 years ago called uh, the E myth, you know, E for entrepreneurship myth. And like the, the, the thing that sticks out with me about that is like, when you start a business, are, are you really, are you just buying, you know, or it's just creating a job that now you can't ever take away from. <laughs> right, you know, right. Your old job didn't give you enough vacation. Sometimes when you start a business, um, your new one didn't either. <laughs> yeah, yes. right. Yeah. So I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you still own the business, and um, it's allowing you to do other things. So, um, can you tell us a story around? I think. Well, there was a second story that you were going to share that was a little bit more on the personal side in terms of I think putting business or other things on hold? Yeah. 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 So, you know, I got into a horrific car crash in 2018. And prior to that, I was just coasting a little bit. Um, I was doing the kid thing. The business was kind of running by itself. You get into a situation where your life flashes in front of you. It's a big wake up call. Um, You know, I do not get to choose when I die. 
but I sure get to choose how I live and just really making sure that I'm making choices that are living because tomorrow is not promised. And I think sometimes we just forget that can happen. And so that accident really woke me up. 2019 was a big year of just self-reflection. Who am I? What's my purpose? Why am I here? Was was there a lot of physical recovery? Luckily for me, not. We have no idea how not. Like I literally walked away almost unscathed. Um, the police called a few weeks after the accident. They're like, we just want to let you know, we've rebuilt this accident 50 times. We can't build a scenario where you live, let alone where you walk away. Um, I did have an injury. Like once I left the hospital, we're like, okay, you're fine. But then I started spiking a fever. So I went back to the hospital and we realized that the seatbelt had cut one of my breast implants and I didn't have those like saline kind. So it wasn't like I had a flat tire. So I didn't know. And so I tease, I got a new lease on life, a new car and new boobs. Like what more does a female want to my age? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> that car accident oh, wow. woke me up to living. Yeah, I decided to climb a mountain called Ama de Blom for my 40th birthday to kind of launch this decade and say like, here, like the 40s are going to be my best decade. Yeah. And we're going to climb a mountain. And my son didn't understand what I was saying. And so instead of hearing the word Ama de Blom, he heard the word I'm a dumb blonde. And so how old, how old is your son? He's like, he was like nine. Okay. And I'm like this homeschool teacher while I'm training for Ama because COVID hit the scene and no one's doing anything. And I'm trying to give him this pep talk of we do hard things. Like you got this math assignment, don't worry. And he looks at me and he goes, if we do hard things, I don't know why you're climbing a mountain called I'm a dumb blonde instead of a real mountain like Everest. (laughs) And I joke about this mistake of how he heard that because I'm like, finish your homework. We'll look at Everest. So he finishes his homework. We look at Everest. He goes to bed. I still look at Everest. And I think, you know what? If this is the hardest mountain in the world in his mind, I'm going to climb it. And I'm going to show him that whatever our Everest is, we're capable of climbing. And so I hired a coach. Now I'm trained for Everest and AMA. And then the coach gives me a book about being an uphill athlete because I was an athlete, but not an uphill athlete. And in the front, there was a lady who got a Guinness World Record for skiing across the Alps. And I told my coach, like, I could have done that. My kids would think I'm cool. Being a homeschool teacher, not cool. Like, it's not working for me. And my coach comes back a few weeks later with this seven-second summit quest. I'm like, I didn't even know what they were. He's like, listen, it's the second highest point on each continent, seven continents, seven mountains, seven kids. Sounds like a jackpot. And I joke because his mis- my son's misunderstanding of the mountain Ama de Blom has now led me to be a world record holder, like as of <laughs> June 1st of this year. Well, <laughs> so, congratulations. So that happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so like what? When when you said you know that that car accident as it was woke you up like what what were were there other goals around business or, or life that that you were putting on hold until you had that moment that kind of spurred you maybe to different action than you had been thinking about before but tell tell us a little bit more about that yeah you know like it's one of those things where life was good and I kept thinking like am I being greedy that I want more. Am I being greedy where it's like, I should just be lucky that I get to be home with my kids. And once they go to college, then I'll find out something else that I'm interested in and pursue it at that point. But I should just be happy where I am. And 
So it wasn't like I wasn't happy. It's just like there was definitely a part of me that wasn't fulfilled. And so when I got into that car wreck and then I started this pursuit and I look back on things and I think of all the stuff that's happened since I stepped into this new version of me. And I'm like, man, friends that are listening, like whatever is in this heart, like you need to live that thing because so much good happens from that space for all of us. So like selfishly go do you like, please, like I'll benefit. I know this. I know people have benefited from me doing me and it's kind of fun to reinvent yourself and do different things and have more than one career in this life. Like there's a lot of cool things to experience and do and explore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to ask a couple of other questions about the climbing and the mountains and yeah. some of the point there. So like of the seven continents, is Antarctica the hardest to access and get to, to be able to even climb anything? Tell like, tell us about oh that. Oh my gosh. Like Antarctica is crazy. So you have to fly into Punta Arenas, Chile, which is like this teeny tiny little town that has about 0.0% population. And you fly a 747 from Chile down to Antarctica. And the reason why you fly that plane is because if there's a cloud in Antarctica, then the plane can turn around and you can land back in Chile safely without ever needing to land Um, because there's no runway. There's no control tower. You are like the plane is determining its depth perception by shadow. And so it has to have sun to be able to land, to know its depth, to know like it's landing on this ice runway, um, which is just bizarre to think about. And so it's really unique getting down there. And then once you're down there, it's fascinating because there's no life. Like when you're in the middle of Antarctica, there's no trees, there's no plants, there's no bugs, there's nothing. And so the only colors you see are the blue sky, the yellow sun, white snow, and black rock. There's no other color. There's no smell. There's no nothing. And so there's so much sensory deprivation that it really like is a little eerie at first, but then you get used to it. You're like, oh man, we're such adaptable creatures. But like having that lack of visual stimulation really focuses on what's at hand. You don't have anything that's distracting you at all. Other than like freezing cold. I mean, like what what was, I mean, what was the lowest um, temperature and, 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 and as you're climbing, I mean, is just, uh, does it get colder? It's just baseline Antarctica already. Oh, it's cold. It's, it gets colder as you go higher. Um, I brought an 8,000 meter suit. So the, I think Antarctica, and I don't remember exactly. I think the peak was like around 16 or 17,000 feet. Um, but I was wearing an outfit that you'd wear to climb Everest. So like 28, you know, 29,000 feet. Um, so you can dress for it. The nice thing about Antarctica in the center is it's a dry, it's a dry cold. And anybody who knows what a wet cold feels like, they understand the difference because when I was in Mount Logan, so Mount Logan's located in Canada, Mount Logan was by far the coldest I've ever been in my entire life. Like I've been on top of like the highest peak, the second highest peak down to Antarctica and Mount Logan blew all of them out of the water because there's so much moisture because of the Gulf of Alaska. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you you talked about a coach and training and I mean, there's, there's real danger involved. There's risk of, um, is, is the, is there more risk of, let's say 
a physical mistake in your technique or or somehow a mental mistake or a bad decision along the way of like, for example, do you keep going or do you like yeah, that plane so turn around decisions. and go back, right? Yeah. There's like, so when you're climbing a mountain, you are always checking in. Hey, if I have, do I have enough energy to go back from this point? Do I have enough? Cause you're not safe until you're back. So you can't go all the way out to no man's land and then be like, oh shoot. And you have to be prepared. Hey, if I go back and something goes wrong, right? So now all of a sudden we have to take longer to get back. Can I make it? It's always just like in business, you're never a hundred percent comfortable, but you're making decisions on, okay, if I carry this jacket, I'm going to be warmer, but I might only need this jacket for an hour. So do I want to carry this jacket for 30 hours for the potential that I need it for an hour? And how much energy is it going to take for me? And how like, so when you're making business decisions, right? Like I want to have this much here to cover us if X, Y, or Z happens, but then how much is that weighing us down to have that that safety net? So it's it's fascinating how much mountaineering has to do with running a business because they're so similar on so many levels. And you always have to be like, okay, here's the decision I'm making right now. Where does that put me tomorrow? Where does that put me my next step? Where does that put me like down the road and the weather might change? You're always playing. I mean, you're being aggressive, but you're being conservative mm. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's fascinating parallels. You write to, you know, stories you you told earlier. Do we keep going? We don't know exactly what's ahead. Somebody might be advising us what to do. I mean, you know, and I'll, I'll give you credit. You know, I heard, you know, two times where you were open to taking advice from somebody else and, you know, trying um, a different approach at two different points um, in your business that would probably serve you well you know, in, in, in the dangerous pursuit of mountain climbing to, yeah, to, no. to rely on advice and, and, and rely on advice. And you got to trust your own instincts. So I was on, when I went to K2 in 2021, um, we were acclimatizing on a mountain next to it called Broad Peak because K2 is so dangerous. You don't try to, you try to keep it off of it as much as possible. So we're on Broad Peak and things aren't going right. The ropes aren't set up. We were short on oil. Like we didn't have enough oxygen. Like there's just a lot of things that were like, man, you can absorb one of these mistakes. We cannot absorb like seven of these mistakes. And so we got to this point on the mountain and I'm like, guess what? This isn't my mountain. I'm just doing this to acclimatize. I do not need to touch the summit. This does not feel right. I'm going down. And it took me like 30 minutes to get somebody else to go down with me because everybody was there and was summit hungry. Well, we went down. I'm kind of angry about how this whole thing went down. I go all the way to base camp. I go to bed. I get a knock on my tent at midnight. Hey, Jen, there's a problem. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> I mean, I didn't mean to say I'm like, but I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, somebody fell in a crevasse and there's 20 people trapped up there. Everybody's exhausted because this took way longer than expected. They're out of oxygen. Like, what do you know about that point? I'm like, I don't have any help for you. Like, I'm sorry. We're, I mean, we're days from where we are sitting to be able to get back up there and help them. And so when you're in business, you still need to make decisions based on what you feel is right and where your risk tolerance is. And it's sometimes harder when the momentum is like, let's go summit and you're that close. But again, you got to remember like winning is coming home alive. You, you, as you said earlier, you you don't get to choose how you die, but you weren't trying to choose dying up on one of those. Yeah, I just, I mean, like once it became like a higher percentage chance of happening or risking frostbite, like two of my teammates had frostbite where they 
had to have amputated limbs. And I'm like, I, and they tease like their version of the story is, so there's this blonde girl that was on our trek that made the decision to turn around. And man, we wish we'd have listened to her at that time. Right. And my story is like, man, there's these guys on my trek that they were so determined to do this thing. And now they're scarred for life. And you don't get like, there's certain things you just don't recover from at the same level. And another thing to consider is like big mountains take big teams. If you want to build a big company or you have a big vision, you're going to need a big team for that to happen. And so are you setting yourself up to have a big team to hit the summit? Well, again, our guest uh, today is Jen Drummond. And, and Jen, I love how you connect these stories and listen um, stories and lessons from the climbing to the business world. And so let's Let's well, well. First off, I have to ask though: Is there any future climbing? Yes, for you? there is. You, I mean, I'm, not as aggressively. I'm okay. going to take my boys on a climb in a few months, but yes, I'm not. I love it. I love it. I love it. Because I, I figure I could go one of two ways of like, like yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm done. done. And <laughs> I survived it. Let's not push it. But yeah, I bet there's a lot of thrill and uh, satisfaction that comes. So I could see why you would keep. Keep doing that. So I did want to pivot and talk about different things that you do to help bring stories and and lessons and inspirations to other in no particular order. You know, speaking engagements, podcast, and and the book. Um, again, the title of that book, I I another seven stands out here. Yes. Quick proof: seven strategies to build resilience and achieve your life goals. Maybe let, let's talk about the book. Like it couldn't be anything but seven strategies, right? I know I needed it. Like, it's nice when you have the framework of seven, right? Like if you just commit to a number and you're like, this is my number. Now we're going to make everything fit this framework. It helps keeps like the things organized. So yes, seven strategies. And again, it's mainly things that I've learned in business, learned in climbing that apply to all of our pursuits. Um, and it's been very, it's been a fun process. It's been a hard process, but it's super rewarding. I wrote the book to myself five years ago. Like, who was mm. I then? What did I need? And I'm hoping that by sharing these stories and lessons, one, you're entertained, two, mm. you're educated, and yeah. then you get to use them in your own life. Um, you know, the, as I mean, as an author, I, I, I've never climbed a mountain, so I'm not. Well, I've I've climbed a small mountain in. Phoenix, Arizona. How's that? So wait, I, it counts. All mountains count. Okay? Camelback All mountain. mountains count. It's a mountain. I, okay, wait. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have climbed a mountain, uh, but um, it's that's difficult. It, it, I mean, writing a book, you know, is 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 a challenge. Um, I, I'm curious, like, how how did that go? The process of writing and now waiting for the publication, or maybe there's still editing going on. Like, I, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what that process was compared to what you thought it was going to be going into. Oh it. my gosh. Okay. Well, first of all, I have a friend that's an author and we were out to lunch and he's like, you need to write a book as in you should order dessert with our lunch. Okay. <laughs> like it was like, it was that cavalier. And so for some reason I'm like, Oh gosh, like I should write a book. That sounds good. I can definitely share some lessons if it benefits others. And then you get into writing a book and it's so hard because you have this story that you're telling and you, it's like telling it to a white wall. You have no clue if they're absorbing it, if it's too much detail, not enough detail. Are they getting the parallel? Are you making it too blatantly obvious? So then it's boring. And so there's so much that goes into writing a book, so much into structuring it. And then here's the deal. It's like having a lemonade stand. The book is the lemonade. 
okay, great. You made lemonade. Unless you get out there and sell the thing, it doesn't matter. And so now all of a sudden I'm like, I didn't even think about me being a book rep, but I feel like I'm a book sales rep now. (laughs) So there you go. New career. Book promotion. Yeah. You got to promote your own book, but you know, along the way, did you have, um, if you will, uh, you know, a, a book Sherpa guiding you through like editors or people giving you feedback. So it's not just you and the page or that wall you're describing. Like, did, did you ask for feedback or did oh, you have to Yes. Like the whole time um, I've had a ton of assistance, right? Big mountains, big teams. So I've had a ton of people help because again, I'm in my arena And so then I would say things like we did this 20 pitch rock climb and people are like, what's a 20 pitch rock climb, right? So then you're like, oh, okay, I need to make sure this is applicable to somebody that doesn't understand this industry at all. And then do you give that story or do you not? And so it's super helpful to have a lot of feedback along the way and just make sure that truly the time invested by the reader is something that they're getting in return of 10x. But as as an author, something you said a couple of minutes ago sticks with me here of Finding the balance between taking that input and going with your gut, right? It's it's your name on the cover, your it's book. Hard, yeah. especially like and nowadays, like in the world today, you have like the publisher. The publisher picks the title, and I, I'm like, what? The publisher picks the title of my book? What are you talking about? They're like, no, listen, it needs to be SEO friendly. It needs to be searchable. It needs to be all these things. And you're saying they're like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to this. That's a science than an art than I ever understood. It's either science or it's their best guesses versus your best guesses. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. I'm not giving them as much credit as they think they deserve. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, Jen, um, maybe um, also tell us a little bit um, about your podcast, which I'm assuming then you got to choose the name of. I did. Seek Your um, Summit. Yeah, Seek Your Summit. I love podcasting. It's such a fun time to share people's stories and hear different ways of doing life. So my podcast focuses on people that went from success to significance. So they got to the some successful plateau and all of a sudden they wanted more and then what they did with that desire for more and how they impact others and the global economy. And 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 I love that phrase. In fact, I I pulled out of, you know, from your website this phrase, elevating entrepreneurs to go beyond a life of success to a life of significance. Like that that's a powerful notion um just maybe you know do you have a final thought to leave us on on like how you help people is it a matter of helping them define what significance means to them or helping them get there or 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 let's say yeah you know i would say like a lot of people find me when they feel like they've plateaued or they're looking for more or something has put them in a spot where all of a sudden the game changed you know maybe they sold their business and now what's happening or their partner left. And now what does this mean? Or they want to buy their partner out. So it's really like, I find that I get to just be there to hold space and allow them to brainstorm and think like, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? Cause I've been there. So I can say like, well, here's things that I've seen, or here's things that I've seen with other clients, what feels right to you and just helping them shut out the noise of the world and connecting back into that inner knowing, because as transitions are happening, there's a lot of noise. And learning how to listen to yourself through that is what really gets you through to the other side in a way that feels authentic. So um, all right, thank you for that, Jen. And I hope people come check out the book and the podcast and learn about the speaking that you do. Don't make the mistake. It's it's Jen with two N's. Yeah. JenDrummond.com. I'll put a link 
um, in the show notes. And and before we go here, I get to do the goofy Michigan thing because we talked about this before. I know you're in West Michigan. I'm in. Uh, I grew up. We're going to do the hand, the mitten thing. Yes, of course. Listening. With the mitten, we cannot get a, rid of our mitten. Come this on. is only if it's good. It's only good for YouTube. But yeah, I grew up around here. You can do the hand and point roughly vaguely over. Yeah, over. And I grew up on the other side over here. Yep. We're over other sides. I love it. I know that's riveting listening for those just on. The yes. Audio. Yes. You guys just have to imagine with your minds. <laughs> um, but again, Jen Drummond, uh, our guest today, uh, upcoming book, uh, January of next year, Quit Proof, Seven Strategies to Build Resilience and Achieve Your Life Goals. And the podcast again is Seek Your Summit. Jen reached seven summits congratulations on that and 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 thank you so much for being here today hey thank you for having me well thanks again to jen drummond for being our guest today to learn more about her her podcast her book her speaking and more look for links in the show notes or go to markraben.com slash mistake 243 as always i want to thank you for listening i hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.